to our Greek friends and to our new union, Macedonia and Greece, equals in greatness. And to Philip, our king, without whom this union could not be possible. Come, Atlas, leave some damn air in the hall. <laughs> and last, I drink to the king's marriage to my niece, Eurydice, a Macedonian queen we can be proud of! <laughs> to Philip and Eurydice, and to their legitimate sons! <laughs> Welcome to Very Old Money, a podcast that looks at history through money. Episode 3.8, A Royal Soap Opera. Hello everyone, welcome back on the last day of this odd, miserable year 2020. I really, really did not expect this would be such a long delay between episodes. Uh, I just work and other activities just got a little out of control. And uh, writing and editing these episodes take too much time, way too much time. So I'm trying to figure out a way to churn this out much more efficiently and uh, probably control my OCD a little bit when I edit these episodes to make it a little easier on myself. You may see a few more ums and ahs and audio glitches, but at least it may help me get the episodes out more quickly and that will not affect the quality of the episodes. With the COVID pandemic raging, I hope all of you are safe and doing well. The usual announcement before we begin If you are listening to this podcast on YouTube instead of regular podcatchers, please hit the subscribe button below the video. Also, please make sure to hit the bell icon to the right and choose all notifications. That way, you will automatically be notified as new episodes load. Also, this podcast is now available on Amazon Music, so something new where you can listen to this. If the coins I mentioned in today's cover art do not show up in your podcatcher, you can view all the coin images that are discussed in this episode on the website at veryoldmoney.com. We have two coins in the cover art today, and they're both from a new source, Baldwin of St. James in the United Kingdom. And you can visit them at www.stjauctions.com. So on with the show. After a brief detour for the hegemon and never was, well, a long detour after the gap in episodes, so we return now to wrap up the story of Philip, who has Greece under his thumb and is now hegemon through the League of Corinth. Ever since the Persian Wars, it was almost the patriotic duty of the Greeks to take on the great king of Persia. This patriotic feeling, of course, did not prevent the Greeks from allying with the same great king when it suited them. But then why quibble? But before Philip marched off to war, a huge family scandal erupted, and it caused major embarrassment and delayed this great patriotic war. May-December romances can be problematic, 
they are even more problematic when you are a polygamous monarch with a legitimate heir waiting in the wings. And Philip, always amorous, appears to have fallen in love with a young Macedonian noblewoman. And this relationship and the ensuing marriage would showcase a major rupture in the Macedonian royal house. But before we get there, let's have a refresher on Philip's marital adventures. By the time of the latest marriage, Philip had already been married six times. These marriages have been mentioned in previous episodes. The first wife was Odata, the daughter or relative of the Illyrian king Bardylus. Renamed Eurydice after Philip's mother, she appears to have been dead at this point because the new Macedonian queen would also receive this name. Odata Eurydice left behind a daughter, Kinane, who will play a part in our later story. In the Illyrian tradition, Kinane appears to have been, have, have been trained in riding, hunting, and fighting. By this point, Kinane, who supposedly accompanied Philip on the Illyrian wars and even killed an opposing Illyrian queen, if the ancient sources are to be believed, was married to Philip's nephew and the former king, Amyntas IV. The two had a daughter, Adia, another person to keep in mind. Wife number two was Phila of Elimea, a Macedonian principality. Likely married to Philip to stabilize the new king's precarious hold on the throne, there's no records of any children, and we don't even know if she was alive at this point. The next wife, and most important for our story, was Metale of Epirus eldest daughter of King Neoptolemus of Epirus, sister of the current king Alexander I of Epirus. But in recognition of Philip's victory in the Olympic Games in 356 BC, she received the name by which she is known by in history, Olympias. The renaming also coincided with the birth of Philip's heir and oldest son, Alexander. The next year, Olympias gave birth to a daughter, Cleopatra will also play a role in our story going forward. The next wife is Nicesipolis of Ferrai in Thessaly, either a wife or a concubine of Philip and possibly a relative of Jason. By now she was dead, dying 20 days after giving birth to her daughter. And this came after Philip's great victory at the Battle of Crocus Field, so the child was named Thessalonike, which translates to, the Thess to Thessalian victory. Now, this is a recurring problem in the history of Philip because you get dates and they don't always line up. And so the Battle of Crocus Field was in 352. And if, if Thessalonike is born right after that, she is only four years younger than Alexander. But the sources also indicate she was like a child of six or seven at the time of Philip's death. So which would mean she's born later. Uh and about the events that are about to unfold. So she would be born about 345 BC. And this is something I've struggled putting these episodes together because the dates don't always line up. And at some point, I'm just going to barge ahead. And if it was 345, the Battle of Crocus Field, which was earlier, would not be the battle after which she was named. So who knows what's going on here? So I'm going to just barge on ahead. Uh, regardless, Thessalonike was raised by Olympias as her own daughter because Olympias was friends with Nicesipolis. And 
She would accompany Olympias in a train for the next 20 years until her trajectory suddenly changes. At this point in the events, she's a child and is a non-factor. The next is Philip's other Thessalian wife, Philina of Larissa. This is the mother of Philip's other legitimate son, Aridaeus. However, Aridaeus is not seen as a real contender for the throne as he had some sort of learning or mental disability. Ancient chronicles love to ascribe all sorts of nefarious deeds to the agency of women, and this is particularly true when it comes to poison, which was considered as a cowardly, or according to them, a women's way of committing murder. Olympia's brash, assertive, ruthless in protecting her family, and also to them a little weird because she was a servant of Dionysus who played around with snakes, has been the target of many such calumnies over the years. Now, set aside the fact, men in this story are going to be every bit, if not more, brutal in exterminating rivals. The problem for Olympia is she was a woman. She's not supposed to act this way. And that does not help her in the Chronicles. And she's not the first or the last royal woman in history to face these double standards. Plutarch wrote that Aridaeus's disability was caused by a poisoning attempt by Olympias. This seems a bit far-fetched. There's no real reason to support this. Now, it's possible that it appears that Aridaeus may have been older than Alexander. But again, this is where the dates come and become confusing because was Olympias wife number four or was she wife number three? When did those Thessalian marriages take place? And it gets, it's a muddle. Um, Wife number six was Mida of Odessos. She was the daughter of a king of Thrace, Cothelus. She's a recent wife, only married in the late 340s BC, and there appear to have been no children. But her legacy to posterity is the Mida Nuntak Ridge in Antarctica. Her other, her other note in history, according to the historian N.G.L. Hammond, was a decision to commit suicide on the death of Philip. Something the Macedonians were not used to, but evidently got her buried in the room next to him. Now, this is probably the only podcast that is going to repeat the young Amantas IV multiple times, because this is basically something I've never really got a good answer to. The young Amantas IV never appears to have played a part in the succession discussion. And the sources really don't deal with him that much. We know nothing about his personality, character, education, everything's a void. And it's given what's about to unfold, it's puzzling that an adult male of presumably full Macedonian blood and a former king to boot is playing no part in this discussion. He's even married to Philip's oldest daughter. And as I said, the sources in the ensuing drama pretty much overlook his existence. As far as I've seen, there's no references to him on campaign, even at Karanea, where Alexander won his spurs. So what exactly was he doing? Was his existence a gilded cage? We will never know. Now, Philip, at this point, does marry him off to his oldest daughter. And they have produced a daughter. And then, of course, there's a possibility that there will be more children. Now, this could be a way to ensure the Macedonian royal succession, because Alexander, at this point, is not married. But then why would Philip create potential rivals to his likely designated heir? 
Now, Amartya is the fourth being superseded in discussions of the succession in favor of the son of someone like Philip is not without parallels in later history. After all, Philip not only saved the Macedonian kingdom from destruction, he had made it the first power to bring Greece under his sway. The prestige of Philip's achievements overshadowed any claims this former king had. In English history, you see something similar with Alfred the Great, who saved the kingdom of Wessex from destruction. And Alfred, as he grew older, advanced the claim of his own son, Edward the Elder, over those of his nephew, Ethelwald, who was the son of his older brother and predecessor, Ethelred I. And when Ethelred died, Ethelwald was set, Ethelwald, who was a child, was set aside so that the adult Alfred, sort of like what Philip did, would take the throne to fight off the Vikings. Now, Ethelwald would burden the injustice of this all. He would even make an unsuccessful play for the throne after Alfred dies. But we have no idea what Amantus IV felt, or if he even has a faction around him. And yet Philip keeps his nephew alive while he hunted down and killed his half-brothers. Now, Amantus IV is going to remain with us in the shadows for another couple of episodes of the series. And even though he will leave us a redoubtable daughter, he's still a shadow. So with Amantus IV, for whatever reason, a non-factor in the succession struggles and Aridaeus disqualified for incapacity, that leaves Alexander as the only logical heir. Educated by Aristotle, having shown his ability in battle, he was an heir a father could be proud of, but then also fear. It did not help that the young nobles around Alexander were referring to him as the next king. Philip may be proud of his son, but he could also be jealous. And the history of monarchy is full of tension between the setting and rising sun. Philip had only one eye left. He was limping and full of scars, but he still did not see himself setting anytime soon. And after all, wasn't Philip just about to lead the Macedonians into Asia? And with all these tensions floating around, Philip appears to have fallen in love with a young Macedonian noblewoman, Cleopatra, daughter of Hippostratus, and more importantly, she was a niece of Attalus, who was an important courtier, but his rise to prominence appears to have been a result of this marriage, and he was a general of Philip. Now, the wedding really set the cat among the pigeons, and it fractured the Argyad royal house. But before we get to that, let's take a detour and look at the coins that cover art today. Now, both of these are gold staters. They're both of the same type, but they're different mints. The obverse shows a laureate head of Apollo facing right on the obverse, and the reverse is a galloping biga, a chariot with horses. The name Philippoi in Greek, which is of Philip, basically King Philip, is below. Now the coins each weigh, the first one is 8.59 grams, the second is 8.63 grams, and they have been assigned to two mints based on the mint mark below the horses. The first is an ivy leaf that has been attributed to Amphipolis. Now Amphipolis's capture in 356 gave Philip access to the gold and silver mines in the region and made these coins basically possible. And the second one has a thunderbolt which has been attributed the mint at the Macedonian capital at Pella. Uh, the original coins in this series started with longer hair for Apollo and eventually they sent him to the barber because he has shorter hair depicted on these coins. 
and as such, these are likely from the last part of Philip's reign. I mentioned this before, mainland Greece was rich in silver but not gold, and most Greek coins, if they're not bronze, tended to be silver and not gold. The most common gold coin that has been circulating around the region for two centuries by now is the Persian Daric, which replaced the Lydian staters that we previously met, and we'll discuss the Daric in two episodes from now. Now, the Daric is cruder in manufacture and style, and these gold coins issued by Philip were naturally a big hit in contrast. Now, as we discussed in our earlier episodes on Lydian coinage, gold is too pricey for daily transactions. So these coins had three possible uses, pay soldiers and mercenaries, taxes, and large purchases abroad. Now the last is the likely intent of the coin, with these coins spread rapidly throughout the Western world, from the Balkans, continental Greece, beyond, and many of them with Philip's name were minted posthumously by Alexander, and then of course Alexander's successor who bore the name Philip, and the coins are referred to as Philippioi, or Philips. And just as the coke staters of Alexander we'll meet soon will carry, will be called Alexanders. And these hordes have been uncovered in Italy, Constantinople, southern Russia, Cyprus, Syria, Egypt. They got around. And not only did these coins get around, they inspired imitations. The Celts around the Danube and all the way into Gaul, that is modern France, loved Macedonian staters and tetradrams issued by Alexander and Philip, and they issued imitations that were first really crude copies, and then they will emerge into these weird abstract renditions. Now, the Gallic staters inspired by the Philips were minted all the way up till Caesar's conquest of Gaul three centuries later, and they were so common that early Roman authors basically referred to any heavy gold coins as Philips. Since we are reaching the end of our time with Philip, I thought say I would save these two gold coins for while Philip is still standing, albeit, as we'll find out, a bit drunkenly. So back to the story. The wedding of Philip and Cleopatra, soon to be renamed Eurydice, brought the simmering tensions in the royal house to a boil, and the lid blew off at the feast. Atalus, uncle of the bride, gave the toast that we heard at the beginning of this episode or something close to it that crystallized all of Alexander's fears of being supplanted by a mewling babe of pure Macedonian stock. This is how Plutarch describes what happened. At the wedding of Cleopatra, whom Philip fell in love with and married, she being much too young for him, her uncle Attalus in his drink desired the Macedonians would implore the gods to give them a lawful successor to the kingdom by his niece. This so irritated Alexander that throwing one of the cups at his head, he yelled, You villain? What am I then? A bastard? Then Philip, taking Attalus's part, rose up and would have run his son through. But by good fortune for them both, either his over-hasty rage or the wine he had drunk made his foot slip, so that he fell down on the floor, at which Alexander reproachfully insulted over him. See there, said he, the man who makes preparations to pass out of Europe into Asia overturned in passing from one seat to another. 
Ouch. The result was a breach in the royal house. Alexander and his mother left to the court of Olympias's brother, Alexander I of Epirus. Alexander himself then appears to have moved on to be the honored guest of the Illyrian king. The result of this embarrassing scandal saw Philip's former chief queen and heir in exile. One ancient source even suggests that Philip divorced Olympias, but that's not clear. We have focused on Alexander's insecurities at being displaced at the succession, but as I mentioned earlier, Philip had his own insecurities. He was no longer young, his body showed the battering of a lifetime in battle, and the young nobles around Alexander were already talking about the next king. Two alpha males will find it hard to coexist, and it's unlikely that even a drunk Attalus would have dared act this way if there were no tensions from Philip's end. The rest of Greece, who resented Macedonian yoke, must have chortled at this drunken farce playing out in public. A campaign across the Hellespont into Asia with a resentful air sheltering with likely enemies was impossible. Into this enters a rich Corinthian called Demaratus, who, seeing the writing of the wall, had attached himself to the pro-Macedonian party and was friends with both Philip and Alexander. With respect to the latter, he, it appears he was the man who, brought, who bought Bucephalus, the horse, and gifted it to Alexander. Alexander and his horse were inseparable, and very few gifts have been better received. Plutarch summarizes the visit of Demaratus best. Meanwhile, Demaratus the Corinthian, who was guest friend of the house and a man of frank speech, came to see Philip. After the first greetings and welcomes were over, Philip asked him how the Greeks were agreeing with one another. How the Greeks were agreeing with one another. Demaratus replied, It is surely very fitting, Philip, that thou shouldst be concerned about Greece, when thou hast filled thine own house with such great dissension and calamities. Again, ouch, Philip is getting burned over here in this episode. Plutarch goes on to say that this blunt talk brought Philip to his senses. Demaratus was sent to Alexander, who, assurance, who after assurances of security, returned home. Olympias, however, remained in Epirus. Yet, the tensions in the Macedonian court remained, as evidenced by the odd story of the marriage proposal for the mentally incapacitated Aridaeus. Pixodorus was the satrap of Caria, a Persian province on the western coast of Anatolia. He was the younger brother and eventual successor of Mausolus, whose name survives in posterity due to the tomb built for him by his grieving sister-wife, the Mausoleum. And yes, that's where the name comes from. I'm not going to get too much in the weeds about the history of this house because I'll be covering Mausolus and the Mausoleum in greater detail soon in announcements to come in the next episode. Suffice it to say, for various reasons, Pixodorus wanted to tighten his hold on his satrapy and went about seeking allies. Seeing the impending Macedonian invasion, and with Pella a lot closer than Susa, he was prepared to switch sides and offered the hand of his daughter, Ada II, to Philip, who then appears to have proposed Aridaeus as the groom. Now, as I said, nobody expected Aridaeus to become king, but it is possible he was Philip's oldest son, and he could obviously father a child who could be king. And Alexander, to the, at this time, to the irritation of his mother, 
and possibly his father was showing no interest in women and was not getting married anytime soon. And indeed it's baffling that he would set off, set off on his great campaign without trying to secure the succession. But something about this marriage set off alarm bells in Alexander's head and he intervened and through an intermediary he approached Pixodarus offering himself as the groom. Now the satrap of course would rather have the likely future king rather than a half-wit for a son-in-law and was eager to accept. But at this point an annoyed Philip intervened and put a kibosh in the whole thing, whole deal. Alexander was chastised for being ignoble and unworthy of his high estate in wanting to become the son-in-law of a mere carrion and who was a slave to a barbarian king. Now, Alexander's insecurity here would cause the Macedonians an ally in an important Persian province. Philip sent orders to Corinth to send back the actor Thessalus, who was the aforementioned intermediary, back in chains, and Alexander's friends Harpalus, Nearchus, Erigaius and Ptolemy, most of whom we'll meet again, and one will, who will be with us almost to the very end of the season, were banished. Now, Pixodorus then married a daughter to a Persian who the Greeks referred to as Orantobates, whose name might have been Orandabad, and I'm probably butchering the pronunciations here. Now, this bride could have been the same aforementioned Ada II, but this is not definitive. And this new son-in-law would eventually succeed Pixodarus in 335 and we will see him again because he's going to oppose Alexander's invasion of Asia. Now with the family almost all together, Philip decided to seal the deal. Olympias was still stewing at the court of her brother Alexander in Epirus. But what if she could no longer rely on the support of her brother? So Philip, in a marrying mood, decides to plan another wedding. Now, this is not his wedding, but so what if the groom in question was once his lover? So what if the bride in question was the groom's niece? Alexander of Epirus would marry Cleopatra, daughter of Philip and Olympias. The wedding date was set for about October 336 BC, and everyone who married was invited to Aegae, the former capital of Macedonia. Philip would display his now reunited family, including Olympias, and show the world he was just the man who deserved to be hegemon, and the man who would read the Greeks against Persia. And just to avoid trouble, Atlas was sent off. He would lead the Macedonian advance guard into Asia. Everything was set. What could go wrong? Well, something would go wrong, and we will explore that in the next episode as Philip runs into one sharp pointy object too many. In episode 3.9, the king is dead. Who killed the king? See you soon, and stay safe everyone. If you like this episode, please give this podcast a 5-star review on iTunes or the podcatcher from where you access this podcast. Good reviews are always essential for getting the word out. Thank you again for your support.